Uh, this week we're actually going to be continuing in our short series. Um, I actually really, really like this format that we have. Uh, in our year of biblical literacy, we have these short series to kind of supplement and help us as we walk through the scriptures together. I, I'm actually really enjoying that. Um, on, t- on, or I should say in light of that, how is all of that going? How's our year of biblical literacy rolling out for you guys? Good? Um, I, I know that there are some that are, man, they're just really excited to, to kind of stay on, on track, and I know conversations are happening, this is good. Uh, in a group this size, in a church uh, the size of Refuge, I know that there are probably some of us who somewhat fell off the wagon somewhere in the late 40s of Genesis, and have been lagging around trying to get back on, and, and you know what, that's okay. The one thing with having a reading plan together, this is, this is really a practice um, of faithfulness in the word. It's not meant to be something you feel guilty about when you, when you aren't doing it. So uh, if, if any of you feel that way or, oh man, I fell off, I can't go, just, you know what, start tomorrow, just get back on. All right, just, just, just hop back on and, and through, you know, if, if you have some additional time, read back through some of the other passages that you missed out on. Uh, but don't make that a reason that you just say, well, I, I, I screwed it up. I can't, can't do this. Um, no, just hop back on with this. And, you know, one thing that makes it a little bit easier is if you have some sort of accountability to go along with it. I do know there are some groups that are meeting together to kind of talk about those things. I really think that's going to be just super important for us uh, as we're walking through this. If we're not meeting together, if we're not talking about it, you know, that, that added accountability, not somebody that makes you feel guilty, but somebody that encourages you uh, to continue on, it, it makes a big difference. So, you know, I've, I've, I meet with people and, and uh, we talk about it, and, and that's a good thing. So for some of you who have fallen off, you know, get back on the proverbial horse and maybe find somebody to talk to about uh, some of the questions you have. Uh, this is a great time to do that. So anyway, that's the unsolicited encouragement for this week. Let's sharpen each other in this way. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us before we look into God's word and we see where we're going today. Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm just so thankful that you've given us your word. Lord, thank you for, for preserving it. Thank you for giving it to us in a form that we can consume. Thank you for the written word. Lord, thank you that we live in a place where we have such a multitude of different ways of interacting with your word, whether it's through a printed Bible, through an app, Lord, even just listening or watching videos, whatever it is, Lord, thank you for all the different tools that we have. And Lord, I pray that we would really appreciate it, knowing that there's so many around the world who don't have all those resources. And Lord, even some people who don't have the word of God in their language still, even today. So Lord, we pray for them. Lord, I pray that you would, um, Lord, quicken people's hearts to work on these type of projects, to really bring your word to those in this world. Lord, as we look into your word, I pray that we would have hearts that are ready, Lord, to learn the lessons that you've given to us from your word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so we're in a short series uh, at the moment going through the story of God. Yes, or the story, his story, not history, his story. All right, so we're walking through this, this idea, this concept of of, of the Bible as, as a larger story. Now, when we say story, we don't mean fiction. What we just mean is a, a consistent thematic narrative as the delivery system for this truth that we have. Uh, given to us in, in, a, in a really easy way for us to consume. 
Um, he just got back from Africa not too long ago. And, and honestly, their view of Scripture, when they, when they start to study it, is, is more of, of a story. This is how they interact with God's Word. It's a narrative. I, I bet you, you know, if, if we sat down and I asked you guys for one of your favorite movies, someone yell out, what's one of your favorite movies? The Sandlot. Who, el- who else would be on the Sandlot train? Anybody? Okay. I bet you, even though if you haven't seen it in years, I don't know, maybe you watch it weekly. I don't know. <laughs> even if you haven't seen it for years, I bet you you could sit across from someone else and explain to them the whole story. Now, why could we do that? Why could someone, even if they haven't interacted with you for years? It's because it's given to us in a sequence of events that has emotional ties and themes that we understand and know given to us in a memorable sequence. Maybe there's memorable characters or events, right? I just took the Sandlot and I made it boring, right, by explaining it that way. But you know what I mean, right? Uh, That's how a story works. And so for some of us to say, oh, the Bible's so hard to understand. Maybe it's because we're watching the movies out of sequence, if you want to put it that way. Maybe we aren't really understanding how the pieces fit because we haven't seen how the whole thing rolls. And so this, this short series that we have here, this, this story, this big story that God has put together, it's super important because it lets us take different parts of Scripture, things that we know and understand, and put it in the proper place so it's for us to understand it in its context. And so last week, Char talked about the fall, right? Very important part of the story and how that kind of works its way through the story of Scripture, right? So he, he really, I mean, his passage was really Genesis 2 and 3. Uh, today, I have Israel, which is Genesis 4 through Micah 7, and so, I don't know how that worked, but uh, I have a lot to cover. Um, but it's okay, you know why? Because if we actually look at it like a story, it becomes a lot easier to consume that much information. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Israel's a story. Now, when we, when we talk about Israel, for some churches, from some Areas that, that, that all of a sudden becomes controversial. Right? Now, we're not talking about modern politics, but even just the idea that we would spend time to learn and understand the story of Israel starts to become, become controversial because some people will look back at it and say, but that, yeah, but that's old. We have the New Testament. We don't need the Old Testament. When I was in um, Bible school and seminary, I loved Hebrew. I thought it was so interesting. I loved it. And I was able to take a couple years of it. And you say amen? Yeah, yeah. That's Greek, but yes. Uh, um, uh, it's sad to hear that there's so many Bible schools and seminaries that are not only not requiring Hebrew anymore, but they're de-emphasizing a learning of the Old Testament. And why? They say, well, it takes away from our, our study of the New Testament and of the New Covenant and of grace. And it's say, you know what? If you only read the last few chapters of a story, what kind of an impact would that really have? First of all, it doesn't make as much sense. Right? But then also, uh, think of it this way. The Old Testament is the question. New Testament is the answer you actually can't really understand large parts of the New Testament without an Old Testament understanding because it's assumed. It's assumed that you know and understand that. Also, when you look in the New Testament, every time it says scriptures, recognize that the New Testament was not finished. When it says scriptures, what's it talking about? It's talking about the Old Testament. 
So we don't want to de-emphasize it. Actually, if you look through the New Testament, it is emphasizing that understanding. Right? And all of a sudden, a lot of parts of the New Testament start to become clear when we put all those pieces together. Right? Now, we're not just going to launch into the study. We, have, we need to understand the setting. So if you're going to look at a story, you need to understand the setting and set up the conflict. Right? So the fall really is, is the large conflict. But if you were to talk to someone who lived at Jesus' time, someone who's faithful to the scriptures, and they would say, what, what is the pivotal aspect of, of the conflict that we see in this world? We would, we would respond the same way they would. It's sin. Right? Sin is the big conflict that we see. The ramifications of sin is death. That affects everybody. It's a big deal. We talked about the fall last week. But they would add a couple of additional pieces, and I think it's important because our first question, why is Israel important? We have to ask a couple of other questions, look at a couple of other events to really capture why Israel is so significant in the Old Testament. All right, so we talked about the fall. Last week, the fall, of course, is, uh, it was the event that enabled sin in the hearts of mankind and to affect sequence of events that brought death. Big deal, right? It's a, it, I won't saying it like, oh, big deal. It's, it is a big deal. It's a huge deal. That is the conflict that was brought into this world. All right? It was a plan by the enemy to ruin creation. But God gave what? He gave a promise. Genesis 3 gave a promise that he was going to fix it. All right? Well, now you have the conflict. You have the serpent. You have the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. That is a conflict that's set up. <coughs> As we continue in Genesis, if you were talking to a scholar at the time of Jesus in the second temple period, it'd say that there is one other significant event that's important. See, if you look at the fall, the fall didn't take sin and make it permeate every part of humanity. Right? In fact, the story after the fall that we get is the story of Cain and Abel. One brother murdered another. One murder becomes significant. This isn't really, you know, the permeation of sin in every corner of humanity, is it? One murder, I'm going to get still a big deal, but it's not that permeated, deviant heart that we see discussed. And so they'd say there's actually something else that took place. If you look at Genesis chapter 6, we see the, the account of the flood. All of a sudden we get to the flood, and sin is so permeated throughout all of humanity. How did that happen? How did it happen that quickly? And for us, we go to a verse that may feel uncomfortable or look weird. We don't know how it all fits, but it's part of the story. Genesis chapter 6, verse 4 says that there was a little bit of help there. It wasn't just the sinfulness of humanity. Genesis chapter 6, verse 4 talks about the incursion. That's what I like to call it. It's the incursion. This is when angels left their proper abode, as it talks about in, in Peter and in Jude, left their proper abode and had an in a sinful influence in this world. It says that the sons of God, which in the Old Testament identifies the angelic beings, that's the best term I could use at this point, identifies them as coming, and it says that they had offspring. And this was a mixture. This was an incursion, and this was to stop that prophecy that happened in Genesis 3. It was to destroy that genetic link that humanity had. And by the time you get to the time of Noah, it's so permeated humanity. It says that Noah and his family are the only ones faithful. What the stories that we get from the, they're identified 
as the watcher angels, what we get is this actual teaching and discussion and practice of sin. That's where people learned how to make weapons. That's how they learned different, to put it delicately, um, you know, forms of sensuality. They learned all these different things, and they practiced them and got good at them. And it really permeated all of humanity at that point. Now, I'm not excusing humanity at all, but it really did help. And they would see that as a massively significant event. To see the fall, which gave the possibility of horrible permeated sin, and then to see it actually fulfilled by the time we get to Genesis 6, with the help of the supernatural, is, well, you can see why at that point God would say he has to do something drastic. And that's where we get the flood. All right, so we have this happen, and everyone who is on the ark is safe, everyone else is destroyed. Pretty significant human event. Okay, so that's, that's two events that we see. There's a third that helps to set us up. It's found in Genesis 11. After everybody gets off the ark, right, they, they're very happy to get off the ark, been on there for over a year. God gives them the same command that God gave to, to Adam and Eve, which is what? Do you remember? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Okay? So they're supposed to go and do that. Did they accomplish that? All but the last. They were fruitful and they multiplied, but they stayed. Why did they stay? Well, there was the influence of a king. He was an earthly king who had the title of Nimrod. It's a title, it's not necessarily a name. The title means the rebeller. That became his title. Whether it was given to him before or after the events... Who knows? But it's a pretty significant name. <laughs> Nimrod, under his leadership, what they do is they build a tower, right? Now, there's different elements to the story that we, we probably don't get. It's, it's told very quickly in only a few verses. But all of humanity, most of humanity, backs this leader. And their point is to rebel against God. That was the ultimate goal. And they build a monument to that. They build this tower. And there may have been some other things going on, other aspects that are not recorded because, honestly, it's not that important to the story. But what you have here is you have the majority of humanity completely rejecting God as their leader, re- rejecting God as their God, saying, we don't want you, we don't need you. And so in Genesis 11, what you have is you have the fall of this tower, and you have the confusing of languages, Right? God says to his court, hey, let's go down and see what's going on. They go down and see it and says, look, if we let this go, nothing will be impossible to them. Divided the nations. Now, if you look through there, what's given is the table of nations. Seventy different groups. And obviously, you get more nations out of that. But these 70 that are named there, they go out and then they're kind of forced to separate and to fill the earth. They can't, they can't talk. They can't unify any longer with language. So now they're sort of forced to go out and to do what God told them to do, which is to fill the earth. They go and they do that, and there's one aspect that was understood at that time that we get some clues in into in Deuteronomy. If you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, this is the real setup for that. In our reading, we aren't there yet. In our year of biblical literacy. Deuteronomy 32 if you look at verses 7 and 8. So this is in the retelling of the law. 
It records here, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. Verse 8, when the Most High God gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. There's a significant event that takes place here. Humanity in general says, we reject you, God. And God says, fine. You reject me? I will let you reject me. And so what he does here, it says that they are numbered out according to the sons of God. There was some sort of angelic being placed over in dominance over each one of these nations. That sounds weird. We don't talk about it a whole lot, but it's brought up again in Daniel. Daniel chapter 10, Daniel prays, and he waits three weeks, and finally Gabriel shows up and says, well, as soon as you prayed, I I tried to get here but then I was opposed by the prince of Persia. There was some sort of spiritual entity that was preventing Gabriel from showing up. In the same chapter, he says, I gotta go and I gotta fight the prince of Greece on the way out too. So there's this idea, there's this concept that there is some sort of angelic being that's given uh, dominion over each one of these nations. Which I think part of that is talked about in Romans chapter one, where it says God gave them over to their sinfulness. God gave them over to these things. What's significant about this is, you now have this setup where the nations are now separated out from God by their own accord. They've decided to leave, and God gave them over to their sin. So if you look at the story, we have a promise in Genesis chapter 3. It looks like the story's done. So if we go back to Genesis 11, that could have been the, the last chapter. And just humanity just spinning out of control after that. But what happens in Genesis chapter 12? Genesis 12. We begin our story. So that's the setup. The nations have rejected God. So what does God do? He goes out and he finds a man. Not just any man. He finds a man who has no children. Can't have children. And he says, hey, Abram, I want you to leave. I want you to go somewhere else. And I'm going to make you a nation. Why is that significant? God says, you're going to be the father of my nation, my portion. You see, the table was already set. 70 nations, right, generally, against the nation. So the nations of the world reject, so God makes his own nation. This is why it's really significant when Abram has a child with Sarah, Because that was impossible. It was impossible for them to do this naturally, on their own. They could take no credit for it. This was the child of promise. This was the son that they were waiting for. This was the beginning of that nation. God's nation. He is going to use that nation to fulfill his plan. So Genesis chapter 12, we see that set up. Genesis 15 God continues to discuss this. We even have a veiled prophecy of resurrection. He says to Abram, he says, your, your children are going to be as numerous as the sand in the sea and on all the shores, right? And he also says, and your offspring will be like the stars. Well, their understanding at that time, the stars were supernatural type of heavenly beings. We even still call them heavenly bodies. They had this concept, they had this idea. 
And Abram said, your, or I'm sorry, God said to Abram, your offspring are going to be as numerous as the sea and like the stars. Now, what does that mean? That's a veiled prophecy of the resurrection. See, one day we will become more than human beings. We will be given a body to inherit heaven. It will be given a position to rule, like Adam was told he would have. <clears throat> and so this promise goes to Abram. This is the setup. <clears throat> Next part of the story, we have his sons given that promise as well. That promise is given to Isaac, and then it transfers out to Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel after a wrestling match. Right? He's then called Israel, and that's why it's called the nation of Israel, the one who contends with God. So when we get to the patriarchs, this story is continued. And reiterated, this is what's going to happen. Promises were given. You're going to have this land. This is where it's going to all be. Then you have the story of Joseph. They go down to to Egypt. They all follow. And Jacob, on his deathbed, gives blessings to his children. Gives a blessing to different ones. Blessing to Judah. Blessing to Simeon. Goes on down the line. That's where Judah receives this this blessing that through Judah would come the ruling scepter for Israel, right? Okay, look at Genesis chapter 48. There's something interesting that we most likely read right past. This is important because it tells us a little bit more of that story. Genesis 48, verses 19 and 20. So Jacob is blessing Joseph's sons. You notice there's no tribe of Joseph. Joseph was given this extra blessing of having two tribes come out of his lineage. This is that blessing. Verse 19 said, But his father refused, saying, I know my son, I know. He also shall become a people. He shall, uh, and he shall uh, be great. Nevertheless, the younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. What you have in here is the veiled prophecy that in connection with the nation of Israel, you will have the nations also included in this. That particular tribe of, of Ephraim was out on the side. And it famously, people of other, uh, of other nations came and, and become proselytes and became part of this nation. And so they're actually called sometimes Ephraim of the nations. Because you had people coming in. And this is the beginning of seeing that. See, God's idea was not to only save that family. But God's idea was to save the world through that family. Again, this is the story. It's the same story that we see in Genesis chapter 3. This brings us to the Exodus, which we just finished reading through, right? Not too long ago. They're there, and they're also promised to be in captivity for 400 years. God redeems them using Moses as their leader, they leave. They go to Sinai. God does something new. He gives them a law. He gives them something to live by. This is the next part of the story. So they're, they're told at that point how to live. <clears throat> Everything. How to eat, what holidays to celebrate, what their clothes are supposed to look like, what their week is supposed to look like. Everything. 
They're given a culture. Now the point of the law, some people think it's for salvation, has nothing to do with salvation. There's not one passage that says, do the law and you're saved. This has to do with God teaching his people, this is how you live in a sinful world. He's teaching true righteousness and justice. He's saying, this is how you live your life. Even down to your enemy's donkey falls in a pit on the Sabbath, what do you do? What's the right thing to do? You help it out. Even if it's your enemy. Right? So these principles are in there. Also, there are whole aspects to the law that simply show us how in the world we're supposed to live as sinners and maintain righteousness. It's a very odd thing. So that concept of righteousness is tied to this idea of justice. What it has to do with, do we have a right relationship with God? How do we do this? So a large aspect of the law was teaching, how do we maintain this righteous living, a right relationship with God, even though there's sin around in this world? So you have an example of divorce. Divorce was only initiated because God had to find some way to give us a way to live in sinful type of situations. What do you do? Here's an orderly way that you can do this and care for each one involved and and do this thing. Does God like divorce? No, but he gave a pattern for how to do it properly, to how to maintain righteousness even though we live in a world full of sin. So we don't have time to go through all of all of the law. But the law teaches us about true righteousness. The other thing it teaches us, through a lot of the laws having to do with the sacrificial system, with the temple, right? I think we're just reading through those aspects, right? <clears throat> In our reading plan. God teaches us about holiness. Principles of holiness. God gets to describe how he wants to be worshipped. This is the part where he does that. Why? See, all these things, right? The captivity, the promises, the tribes, the tribal blessings, those promises, the law, the law having to do with righteousness, the law having to do with how holiness is to be lived out. God even says to them, you need to be holy like I'm holy. What is all this for? It's to teach them what the principles of God are so that in the future, when this one that's promised comes, he can be recognized. It's so when John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, they immediately know what he's talking about. That fits right into their understanding of how the world works. Right? All of this was to point to Jesus. That's why these things were given. We have the principles of the priesthood given along with that. And if you've read through Hebrews, you can understand how important that understanding of Jesus being our priest really is. This is where it's introduced. They live this out. So this covenant is made, and they're supposed to live in it. Part of that is blessings and curses. And part of those blessings and curses, they're found at the end of Deuteronomy. If you do these things, God says, I'm going to bless you. Physical blessings, right? It's not talking about salvation. It's talking about if you do these things in the land, then I'm going to bless your fields. I'm going to bless your children. I'm going to protect you from outside invaders. I'm going to bring you rain. He gives all these blessings. Well, on the other side, 
If you want to live in this covenant, if you don't do these things, there's curses. Guess what the curses are on? On your fields, on your family, outside invaders, all those things. I'm going to turn off the rain. Why? God wants to set up this thing so they understand that God is involved in their everyday life. God cares about all these things, and he wants them to live out this example. So he gives you rewards if you do it, and he gives curses if you don't. This is important to understand, because in the next part of the story, they leave, they leave Egypt, they receive the law, they go up, and then you get into the conquest, the time of the conquest. They go in, and part of the issue is they need to trust that God is going to give the things that he promised. Difficult thing when you're standing up against an army. In fact, in Numbers 13, we just read, if you're caught up on the reading, remember all those giants that were talked about in Genesis 6? They meet those in the land too. So this thing continued. Well, now they have to trust him for this conquest. And they do, generally. It takes 20-some-odd years, but then they're in the land. They're given the option by Joshua, do you want to be in this covenant or not? He warns them. He said, if you are, there are consequences to disobedience. Because even at that time, they had started to follow some of the religions that were around them. Even within 20 years. They say, yeah, yeah, we want to do it. He says, okay. So they move forward. We go into the time of the judges. Where God is directly ruling his own people. And it's just a cycle of failure and help and failure. Until we get to the end of the time of the judges with Samuel. During that time, they establish the kingdom. First with Saul. He's not a very good king. God picks a king. He picks David. And here we get the promises of the kingdom. God expands this story even more. In 2 Samuel 7, David wants to build a temple to God. He feels a little guilty. He's moved into Jerusalem and the Ark of the Covenant is sitting in, in a tent and he's in a palace. He says, God, I want to build a temple for you. He says, that's nice, David. He said, but no, you're not going to do it. He said, but because of that, I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to promise you a house, not a physical house, but a dynasty. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gives this next clue in this story where he says a king is coming that is going to be on this throne forever. And that's the promise that we get. Now this one who's coming is not just a Messiah. He's not just going to take care of sin. He's also going to rule. The kingdom falters. After David, we have Solomon. He reached the pinnacle of the kingdom of Israel, extends out to the borders that were promised to Moses, trade throughout, you know, different nations come to see him. That's the pinnacle. But after that, trouble. His sons don't rule well, divide the kingdom. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They're in opposition to each other. In fact, sometimes they go to war against each other. In the north, they never have a righteous king. They get prophets, but they never have a righteous king. In the southern kingdom, they have a handful of righteous kings. 
They spend most of their time undoing what the kings before them implemented. Tearing down idol worshiping areas, cutting down groves, those sorts of things. Wastes a lot of time doing those sort of things. Putting in reforms. But eventually, God makes good on his promises, including his curses. Northern Kingdom, after, man, hundreds of years of not heeding the warning of the prophets, God does what he promised. He leads them into exile. Those nations, I'm sorry, those tribes never come back. They're out in the nations. They're gone. They're scattered. Some of them stay. This is where we get the Samaritans from, in case you're wondering. They stick around. They sort of intermix with the people around them. Southern Kingdom does better. They last for a couple hundred more years, but eventually God takes them also into captivity, just as he promised. Calamity comes upon them, and they're dragged out. Why? Because that's what God promised. You don't do these things, this is going to happen. Now, what's interesting about those curses, and they're found in uh, the end of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30. It even says in there, and when this happens, so even when he gave it, he knew they would do it. When this happens, I'm going to bring you back. There's that promise of the continuation of the story. Because the story could have ended there, but it doesn't. Now we're in the time of Daniel and some of the prophets that are in exile. They return. They're there for 70 years. You ever wondered why 70 years? It goes back to this concept that God gave them, this idea of the Sabbath. You guys know the Sabbath? Now the word Sabbath just means seven. That's all that means. It's just their, their word for the number of the day it was. It's for the seventh day. But even at creation, God gives a pattern. You work, you complete your work throughout the week, and on the seventh day, you rest. See, God did it, right? He creates for six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. Do you think God needed to rest? Do you think he was super tired? I mean, he did a lot of work, he did a lot of stuff, but do you think it exhausted him? Whew, creation's tough work. I need a nap. No, he's setting a pattern for us. And also, the idea of rest is a whole lot bigger. You rest from your work. You cease your striving when the things are complete. Right? So, when you have this concept of the Sabbath, he wanted them to practice it every week, which they did, for the most part. What they did not do was they didn't do the larger work of the Sabbath, which had to do with the Sabbath year. Now, why am I spending any time on this? There were individuals who did this personally. The Sabbath year, it is what it sounds like. It's the seventh year. They're to let all of the fields lie fallow, to rest. Now, you can imagine when your entire industry is based on the agrarian model of society, that's a big deal. To not plant and to not harvest is a huge deal. What it gave them an opportunity to do was to trust the Lord, to provide. And so they would practice this idea and this concept of rest as a community together. They never did it. Not once did they do this. God even had bigger ideas, because after seven of those, you had the year of Jubilee. Now the reason I say this is because this shows the heart of God. The year of Jubilee, God said, all debts are canceled. Can you imagine that? All debts are canceled. And if 
you had sold land, it goes back to the original person that it was originally given to. Tribes would move back to the lands that they were in. The rich would give back the lands that they had purchased to the people they had purchased it from. Slaves would go free. It's a big deal. Why is it a big deal? Because God cares about the oppressed. This is God's economy. God would say, we need time to reflect. So for this year, we're going to rest. We're going to rest from this economic thing that we have. Do you think they ever did this? They didn't do the Sabbath year, so they would never do this. What we had is the entire economy, according to God, was out of joint. It was not fixed. And it didn't have to do with a monetary thing or they weren't making enough sacrifices. It's that they weren't caring for people how God wanted them to care for people. They weren't living righteous lives. And they weren't doing it corporately, together, as a tribal system or as a nation. And the kings never instituted it. The whole thing fell apart. And so they went into exile for 70 years. God forced the land to rest. Then they returned. After 70 years, they return. And this is the promised return. They came back. There's some pivotal people that helped to rebuild some of the things that they had lost. You have Nehemiah. He goes there and he builds the walls around Jerusalem. That's important because you want to rebuild the capital. But you have to be protected. You have Ezra. He's credited with rebuilding the priesthood. Retraining Levites. He actually finds the law. Just found it in the temple. Hey, look at this, guys. Here's the law. This looks important. He said, yeah, it is important. And he made everybody come and to stand and to listen to the whole thing. It was like a reinstitution of the law. That's what Ezra did. And then you have someone whose name I think is really great, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is one of the most important figures because he is tasked with rebuilding the temple, him and the high priest Joshua. It's talked about in Zechariah. These guys are credited with that rebuilding of the temple. That was the last piece that would allow them to continue to live how God had told them to live. He's also significant because he is where the genealogies meet back up. So you have the line from Joseph, the line from Mary, they meet up in Zerubbabel, and then his two children, they split back out. Pretty pretty pivotal person. That's why genealogies are still cool. Um, He rebuilds the temple. You still have prophets. What about the prophets? The prophets' role were to continue to bring the people back to God, give warnings. Careful. You aren't doing what God said. Remember the curses? They're going to happen. No one would listen to the prophets. Just like Mozart, when he would write his, his works, they use it to wrap fish. And after he dies, all of a sudden they become important again. Where are all those? Where's all that sheet music? After the prophets are dead and gone, and after everything they said would happen is fulfilled, then all of a sudden they become important. Well, after they return from their exile, then all of a sudden the prophets are really important. You have more prophets that are continuing to prophesy. And then it stops. It stops for 400 years. There's nothing written. No prophets. The story just continues. There's lots of things that happen in history. You have empires that come and empires that go. The Greeks, the Romans. But guess what? The whole story is still hinging on this promise given in Genesis chapter 3 still given to a nation that is not as faithful as they could be. 
or as they should be. That's supposed to be living out the promises. But God contends with them. During this period of 400 years, they're not able to rule with their own kings, but they start to really establish a life community-wise that encourages the following of the law. So all these stories all kind of coalesce right there, and we're waiting. What are we waiting for? Well, let's, let's recap. Israel's unique. Why is it unique? It's God's nation, his portion. And it's the nation that he's going to use to save all the nations. And that call was given to Abram. The patriarchs, time in the land, promise of the land. They're then enslaved in Egypt. They're taken out of slavery and given the law to learn righteousness, to learn holiness, to, give the, to be given the principles of the kingdom, which, if you were here for the Sermon on the Mount series, were reiterated by Jesus. He fulfilled these things. Right? And then you have the cycle of, or you have the conquest and the cycle of the judges until we get the kings. The promise is given to David that the king is going to come. And then the nation is divided. They fail many times. And the prophets continually preach to them, please, please return, please return. And they don't. So God makes good on his promises and they go to exile. While they're in exile, God forces them to learn and to understand this idea and this principle of the Sabbath. They return God reestablishes them using some pretty pivotal people. And once the priesthood is established, Jerusalem is re-inhabited, and the temple is rebuilt, they continue to live their lives, and they wait. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for someone. They're waiting for the head crusher, the true son, to arrive, the law fulfiller, who's also the law giver the just and the justifier. They're waiting for the righteous one, the one who will give and live the principles that God has established. He's our high priest. He's our warrior king. And he's our redeemer. That's who we wait for. That's who they waited for. We know him. He came. He fulfilled his work, which is why we don't practice the Sabbath anymore. The work is complete. We now rest and we wait again for that king to return. That's the story. That's the big story. Nine or ten components put together. Could we remember that story? As we read through the Old Testament, we start to put characters and places and events together in this structure. Could we remember this story? Could we retell this story? Parents, could you tell that nugget of a story to your kids in five or ten minutes? Could we sit for hours and talk more and more about this story? We should be able to do that because this is the story that God uses for us to understand the biggest picture, which is how people are going to be redeemed. That's why it's important. It's important for us to understand. So as we read through the New Testament, we get it. Because this is the story that Jesus refers back to. This is the story that the apostles refer back to. This is what they point forward to, to see that everything will one day be completely fulfilled. And guess where we will be again? Back in paradise. That's the ultimate fulfillment of all of these things. This is the story 
that we're tasked with knowing and understanding and conveying and telling. This is what we should know. The story of Israel helps us to understand why we need a Messiah, why we need a Redeemer. Remember this, it was always God's intention to save all the nations. Not just his. He would use his to save them all. Sometimes we look too small at things. We think too small. That's what his disciples did. Are you going to establish a kingdom? If I was Jesus, I would have laughed. He says, I don't want Israel. I want the world. I want the kingdom of heaven on earth. You think too small. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we read through your word together corporately as a body, Lord, I pray that we would be impacted by the story that we read. Lord, there's so many key events and and aspects to the story. Lord, I pray that we'd remember these nuggets, these acts that we see. Lord, I pray that as we read through your word and we fill in some of the color in this outline. Lord, that we would see your character. We would see you contending with mankind. Instead of a harsh God, we would actually see who you are, a patient God, one who waits for people to participate in this story with this account, Lord. And Lord, I pray that we would be waiting for our Redeemer to return, trusting that our Redeemer has accomplish the goal that he set forth to accomplish. Lord, we would live out this story. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.